This, the 50th episode of Two and a Mic, together with Karin, explores the importance of a free press. We talk about why democracy needs a functioning and critical media across all political platforms that are uninhibited in their capacities to observe and criticize and call out government and societal ills wherever they are encountered. Journalists should not be bound by a need to juggle political expediency, only the need to respect privacy. And the lines that separate privacy from public interest are best represented by a free and learned judiciary. We are fully aware that we do not exist in a fair society. We are not free of discrimination, prejudice and class struggle. As a society, we have a whole lot of developing still before us. And one sad thought which pervades these reflections is whether we'll even reach the opportunity of enlightenment before our own inflicted climate change wipes our miserably superior bottoms from the face of the earth. How nature will laugh when at the moment of enlightenment it pushes us into the darkness of underground societies. Online, I have come across some fascinating people, and I will not mix up the different groups here. Today it is relevant to mention Rebecca Vincent, a journalist who is the director of uh, international campaigns and UK bureau director at Reporters Without Borders. Rebecca is unknown to me, However, her dedicated coverage of uh, Julian Assange's extradition trial in London, as well as her commitment to fellow journalists, is inspirational. I remember in 2017 the murder of Daphne Caruana Galizia, and in following Rebecca online, I remembered Daphne's assassination again. And in recalling some of the details, it remains a horrific truth and a deeply worrying concern that those who ordered her death remain at large. It is not only grossly embarrassing for Maltese society, but to the whole of the EU. Such injustices cannot be allowed to go unpunished for as long as we wish to promote democratic values beyond our immediate borders. I wish to compliment those journalists such as Rebecca, who go about their duties in the face of consistent abuse. It is through their efforts, and those who went before them, that so many of their critics enjoy the lives they do. Because the true warriors for peace are the ones who selflessly pursue those whose power leverages peace against our conveniences. I want to thank Karin very much as well. Karin has so much to share with us from her many years of work with Penn. She has met some of these warriors of peace and on some occasions lost them to the bullets of corruption 
and hatred. Karin is a wonderful guide and a charismatic voice into the world of protecting the freedoms of the written word and of the press, among others. Actually, a sort of a celebratory session, even though we've got a very serious topic to discuss and, and perhaps is not full of uh, celebratory information. Um, it's This is my 50th podcast. So I, I hadn't actually thought that I would reach 50, um, at least not by before the end of August. Um, clearly, I have you to thank for a great number of those, um, almost a third actually we've done together so i'm you know i'm very thankful for your uh, continued support and participation um, congratulations on <laughs> everything you're doing and you're doing it so well and uh there will be um the next celebration will be 150. oh that would be wonderful um and uh, yeah i look forward to you know then having done even more podcasts with you um and so many many wonderful topics to to discuss um yeah it, it's 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 an interesting thing actually to have this opportunity to talk with people such as yourself um and to be honest i, I couldn't think of um a better person uh, to do number 50 with so thank you very much for you know for coming back and for sacrificing your back in the interests of human rights um i'm yeah extremely that's great little that's little very little <laughs> i know i know um all right so yeah you had this wonderful suggestion um which really uh, dovetailed with the kind of story that um you know i also wanted to to talk about with you um and so it was quite fitting really uh, that you should uh, almost spontaneously have a similar wish. So um, we want to talk about the well, Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, would do you want to go through what Article 19 means, or should you want me to read a little uh, quick uh, uh, excerpt of it? Little, you read a little. Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah. So this article um, says or states that everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. Uh, this right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. Okay, so um, yeah, first of all, okay, you've worked with for Penn and so therefore this article has had not just um, an, a sort of spiritual meaning, but it's had also a very practical meaning. It's had a, a very important and fundamental meaning in the work that you've done. Um, right. But, but do, you um, want to, do you want to talk through that a bit? Um, yes, I, I would, because I want in parallel to the um, Article 19, um, I want to read number four of the Penn Charter, Article 4 of the Penn Charter. Uh, which corresponds to uh, Article 19 of the United Nations um, Human Rights uh, Convention, but it goes more into uh, other aspects as well, which I think are very important. PEN stands for the principle of unhampered transmission of thought within each nation and between nations. 
and members pledge themselves to oppose any form of suppression of freedom of expression in the country and community to which they belong, as well as throughout the world wherever it is possible. Penn declares for free press and opposes arbitrary censorship in times of peace. It believes that the necessary advance of the world toward a more highly organized political and economic order renders a free criticism of governments, administrations and institutions imperative. And since freedom implies voluntary restraint, members pledge themselves to oppose such evils as a free press of a free press as mendacious publication, deliberate falsehood and distortion of facts for political and personal ends. You see why I read this parallel to Article 19, because it also goes into the limits of freedom of expression. Mm. Um, in terms of PEN or our work for writers and journalists, um, the only impediment to freedom of expression was the calling for hatred and calling for war and violence and um, being violent. So whoever, um, if, a, if a journalist had done any of these, we could not work for them. We could not try to, f to free them or to help them and so on and so forth. And that kind of sunk in with me that Article 19 without commentary uh, to me is is too wide. It's too um, indistinctive in terms of what it really means. Um, human rights are non-negotiable, uh, non but um, there are certain limits, and that is the right of others to to have different views, to have different uh, needs, and to have different different means of, of asserting themselves. But at the same time, the limits are hatred and violence and war. Human rights, as I said, are non-negotiable. And the only, and this is why I think Article 19 is so important, and uh, it is the safeguard that you can check on whether human rights are being abided by, whether they are protected. If they're not protected um, and you don't have a free press, so how, how do you know? How can you check on the government? And this is uh, in the beginning, it was uh, checking on governments and institutions. Uh, by now, the false information comes from economic re for economic reasons from uh, for instance a whole networks international networks of pr agencies who are going in and uh, spreading false news particularly during times of elections and you have on on the internet the social media where there is no restraint as far as truthfulness and the um, forbidden violence and forbidden hatred. And this is a situation now so that Article 19 and 
uh, Article 4 of the Penn Charter do not really cover our today's world. So the world is changing as it always is and with it we have to change and I think we have to come up with a different set of rules, a different set of um, freedoms and limitations of freedoms. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting that the art, Article 4 that you've just read of the Penn Charter, because as you say, it does go beyond. It uh, identifies in a far more rigid structure, in a far more narrow, uh, with far more narrow definitions um, of what they exactly mean and, and what should be protected under the law. It's interesting that uh, part of the Penn Charter also refers to misinformation because what I wanted to talk with you about today um, uh, very much uh, is, is something which is fundamental uh, in that particular um, question because we are I wanted to look at the the murder of Daphne Caruana Galizia in in Malta yes and um, and some of the uh, the, the newspapers and colleagues um, in Malta who you know, have become victims of misinformation where false emails have been written on their behalf, false websites have been set up um, purporting to represent them and their views. So this is a classic case of misinformation using um, you know, the internet or internet capabilities, email, social media as well. And so, so it does appear that the, the pen article um, is more adequate for today's needs, even though, as you suggest yourself, it still doesn't quite cover all of the needs. Um, I, I'm, I, I've, I've talked with a few judges about the, the law um, and legal issues regarding internet uh, and technology, and their contention has always been the problem is twofold. One, technology develops so quickly that the law simply cannot keep up. Um, and the second thing is people who are specialized in legal issues are, have very rarely do they actually have enough of an understanding of technological and uh, IT issues to be able to come up with uh, a law which actually covers the needs. Uh, yes. I mean, is that something that you've also experienced? Yes, um, they are not informed enough. Uh, even when I was I was thinking of the pen community who had these rules, um, they were not informed of what was happening on uh, on the internet uh, for a long time, and they had no real uh, means of going against it. Uh, fake news has changed. Fake news in the beginning, or in 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 that sense was fake news or misinterpretation of uh, uh, reality by political uh, parties or states uh, in, in state radio, in, in state media, in um, media by special interests, economic interests, political interests, private interests. And you had um, these different interests that um, could somehow be controlled through a uh, free press that was um, fair and uh, fair and square. Uh, 
which you had to look for all, wherever you went. Um, but um, at least you could find it. Um, the information today comes through different sources. And who reads today five or six newspapers and listens to five or six stations, which um, you had to do if you worked for, for uh, human rights uh, causes, because you needed to know what other people thought and you had to find your trusted media or you had to find the angle that you could uh, deal with. And this is today, it is no longer possible. Um, it's too intricate, it's too difficult, it goes too fast. Um, the, the saying that um, by, by Goethe that uh, nothing is more permanent than change is today still true, but it goes at a speed that is so rapid that we can't follow it. We can, our, with the best of flexibilities, we can't follow it. You have to have almost a, a, a universal mind to be able to comprehend what is going on in each one of the fields and to put them together and see them together and uh, deal with them together, particularly then in, in law is impossible. Yeah, it's it's interesting in many ways. I mean, I, I know we want to focus essentially on um, the, you know, the, the articles that uh, we stated, the principles behind this uh, freedom of expression and, and uh, freedom of information. Um, and also, I'd like to also refer back to this case for a number of reasons. Um, but, but there are so many important points that need to to be raised with this. If you are, for example, an investigative journalist, you become a part of the story, unwittingly perhaps, but you become a part of the story because you essentially uh, uncover these hidden truths which nobody had access to. And the more protected these truths are, the greater the potential danger that an investigative journalist may find themselves in, as was the case with with Daphne, you know, yes. unfortunately, um, and, and the number of others. I mean, you would know far more than than I do in this particular area, and and the the hundreds and thousands, perhaps, who have been killed for uncovering the truth. The the, the unfortunate reality, though, is they become so committed, so dedicated, so embroiled within the details of their investigation and their pursuit, that they they are not always able to extricate themselves from that, um, you know, the, the deep hole that they find themselves in, that they can look above the parapet and see the connections with other investigations or with other um, groups or, um, or organizations. I mean, sometimes they can and they draw together a net. And this is why I think there is this network that uh, brings, pulls together so many different groups of journalists because they see that it's more, it's too much work for uh, small numbers of individual journalists to work on. Um, and so this is where, you know, people come together, communities come together to, to, to be able to link these stories and to put them together into a much larger view, a much larger vision. 
Um, I mean, now, we're not going to contribute to that in any significant way because it would require far more time than, than we have. But um, there is a wealth of hidden truths out there which people need to see, they need to be aware of, but even the, the media doesn't want to uh, refer to it too often. Do you think fear is one of the main problems which needs to be overcome for these media companies? Um, I see a lot of journalists, particularly the investigative uh, journalists who um, deal with fear very, very well. Um, and they know that um, they are drawn into one view of what they're researching. Um, but at the same time, they're working for a station or a network, which means they have to come out and deal with their colleagues in that network uh, and convince them of, of what they have seen or what they have heard. It's voluntary restriction to um, a relatively, it's still an unlimited view of reality. Um, Put that against the embedded uh, um, the embeddedness in in uh, military uh, forces during times of war, when journalists are um, traveling with with the Taliban to get a view of what they think and how they think, and that is, um, I think, much more dangerous. And it's much more limiting than um, really researching around and within one particular field. You see what I mean? There, there are two ways of looking at it. One is the embedded journalist who is um, for life and death, dependent on the people around them. Whereas a journalist who goes into research, um, of course, is endangered if and when those he or she um, researches um, see what they're doing. And you have that in, in many, many cases. We have had that in China. We have had that in Iran. We had Turkey, wherever you look, there are cases where um, some, investig uh, some investigations have caused the bodily harm and, and death of journalists. Look, in, look at Mexico. Um, it, is very, it is a very, very dangerous profession if you do it right. Yeah, and, and indeed fearlessly, um, which is uh, unfortunately um, one of the demands of the uh, of the job, because people secondary tertiary information like that, which uh, upon which I base my thoughts uh, are easy to come by because somebody else has done the dangerous work. And so I'm just reading off um, the efforts of these others. But um, the actual uncovering process uh, is, is, is inherently more dangerous, of course, though 
others who also re refer to these events refer to these investigations. Um, they are essentially, you know, spreading uh, the news and um, you know, furthering as it were, the agenda of these brave souls um, who go out and do what they do. Um, um, with regards to, to Daphne then, so, I mean, her death um, occurred in uh, 2017 in, in Malta. Um, she was uh, the victim of an assassination. Um, her, uh, um, she died by car bomb and uh, three people were arrested uh, for her, her murder. However, the people who paid for this uh, assassination, uh, they, they remain hidden um, and there doesn't appear to be an investigation underway to uncover this um, or these or this individual. I, I don't know. Um, I mean, is that normally the way that things go? I mean, because you... you think Mm. Think of uh, a lot of journalists in, in as a, again, Mexico. Um, the same thing happened there. So why don't, why, I mean, because the international community says, no, these, you know, we need to bring the people to justice. Why does it never happen? Okay, in the case of Herant Dinko, we understand you have uh, a state which is completely against the uh, the peaceful agenda that Herantink had. Um, but in other cases, is that always the way it is? It's not always the way it is, but it is in quite a few number of cases. If they, if the journalist investigates anything that hits close to home, to the government or to the, those in power who feel their power is threatened if, if it comes out that they had the hand in, in the murder of... Um, an investigative journalist, um, then they, they with everything they have, they, they throw every uh, defense up that they can. And it's very, very hard to get at them, to find them. You have that in, in Russia, you have that in China, you have that in Iran as well, in Turkey. Mm. I mean, these kinds of things are generally uh, reminiscent of the consequences of those who pursue organized crime. So in Italy, for example, how many judges and lawyers and investigators were assassinated in, you know, in the course of their work when they were getting too close, perhaps? Yes. But here we're talking about governments. Right. Uh, are, they, are those liberal um, democratic governments? We would, Sometimes they about. say yes. Well, so, well, in the case of Malta, they would say yes. Um, and yet, wh where is the uh, the neutral investigation into this uh, this murder? It's it remains unclear. So, I mean, th this is the point, isn't it? So, exactly it how you know uh, how democratic is uh, a government if it refuses to authorize? Um, a no-holds-barred investigation into the, the killing of somebody who, by all accounts, was their number one journalist. That's, in fact, the measuring stick of democracy and, and liberal uh, aspects of a government. If they don't do that, there's something wrong in that. Uh, there's something wrong in the state of Denmark.
Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to become too dramatic on the issue, but I mean, a similar accusation can also be made of the USA when you have, uh, you know, the, the president was assassinated in, in 1963. They um, immediately had uh, Lee Harvey Oswald in custody. Within a couple of days, he was killed. Um, end of case, because you know he was the sole killer and so on. And uh, even though the commission was later on uh, found to have been faulty in its conclusion um, in, I think, in 1970, when there was a new commission that held an investigation into the Kennedy killing. Um, but then no investigation followed as to what the real case was. And to this day, there is no real conclusion. They don't really no know. No conclusion, but there have been investigations. Um, the only thing... The only big problem is America is um, a democracy in one respect. Um, it is. It has parties. It has elected parties. Uh, but the parties are so strong and so are powerful that they can, if if they are implicated, they put their defenses up. And if there is an interest group that wants to def wanted not to be thought of in line with with the assassination, they will put up the defenses so that nobody is found who really is behind it. And this is this is uh, it, it's a it's a question. It's a problem. I don't have any conclusion for I I it pains me no end because it's everywhere. Um, the question of democracy is getting to be a very, very precarious one. Um, if you think about a demo democratic state, which one is democratic? Which one would you say is more than 50% democratic? Well, what is your interpretation of democracy? Because I, I mean, I, I don't recognize any purely democratic states. I mean, some people would point either. to me as Switzerland, I but I don't know. I mean, is is Switzerland truly democratic? Perhaps more than others, but uh, right. You know. I'm I'm for the principles of democracy, of equal rights, of uh, freedom of the, of the press, uh, but we don't have it 100% every anywhere. No. Not 100%, no. But I mean, okay, some people would say, but yeah, then 100% democracy would never work. Look at what happened in ancient Greece and the old Athenian League and so on. Yes, fair enough. All right. It's um, it's very, very difficult to manage. And so we have this concept of representative democracy because we feel that's the easiest way to govern. Um, uh, yeah, unfortunately, when the many elements of what should be good governance, however, fall by the wayside, then there are questions that need to be asked. So, um, I mean, essentially what we're talking about is there would be no need or there should be no need for investigative journalists if the checks and balances of a democratic system would work. work. Yeah, Yes. exactly. And this is what my, my answer to the, your question uh, was this is why we need investigative journalists and we should we should be proud of them and we should support them and we should uh, 
I don't like the word hero, but they are um, very, very brave. I saw a CNN report uh, today um, by one of those women who I really admire most, and that was uh, Clarissa Ward. Uh, she was uh, interviewing the uh, Taliban, and uh, she was asking the right and the direct questions. And of course, this is dangerous. Of course, this is dangerous. But you have those people, you have them um, sometimes where you don't expect them. But they're not that many either. Mm. Because yeah. they know what is at stake, their lives, their families. Um, I wanted to become a journalist when I was very young. And I debated it with myself a long time. And I said, no, I want to be free to criticize, free to go against government uh, regulations if need be for the benefit of those we need to help because they are being persecuted. And that you cannot do as a journalist. You cannot take sides as easily as somebody who is non-journalist. Mm. And I didn't want, uh, I, I wanted to take sides. We expect from journalists that they are relatively uh, neutral, which of course is, is Ludicrous look at the American system of, of uh, television. You have Fox News, you have CNN, and uh, they're in their own bubble. And the yeah. journalists are in their own bubble. And the readers are in their own bubble. And then you, you have Absolutely. communities split by these uh, these bubbles. And it's yeah, uh, but the echo chambers are horrible. You have that here too. Everywhere. You know, the the... the uh, smaller papers, the local papers. Um, there's one is is CDU, one is SPD. You know why should a paper have uh, affiliations with the party or with the government? To me, they should all be independent in in the sense that they should um, be able to take sides for the good, for the principle, not for the money or for the ideology, but that's you and I. We we don't make the rules. We don't. Uh, we can't uh, interfere. We can only note, and we can only criticize. And many people don't even understand what we're talking about. Yeah, because they uh, a lot of people don't want to consider these issues because they they believe this borders on um, the, the conspiratorial. They believe this relates to uh, the kind of deep waters which their lives will never make contact with. But unfortunately, these are actually elements which you know bubble up 
these 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 do not remain in these those deep waters far away in in the, you know some kind of uh, a sea which uh, is completely far away from our reality because the bubbles do rise up so when right. you talk about the papers that you talk about affiliated to the ideologies and the political parties that they are affiliated to they essentially pass on a certain way of thinking which becomes um, ubiquitous. People are then forced to believe the truth that it continues to be written there. I mean, you know, there are some reputable newspapers in, in many of these countries, and yet they publish, uh, for example, adverts against, um, you know, against Annalena Baerbock, for example, in the mm -hmm. run-up to this election. And these were adverts which were, you know, borderline hate messages. And it's horrific that they should be allowed in, you know, in, in a democracy. Um, even if they if they are not forbidden to do it, they shouldn't they they shouldn't it shouldn't get to the, uh, come to their mind to do that. They should be ostracized for doing this. Yeah, I mean, it would be expected uh, that that would be the case. But unfortunately, I mean, one of the unfortunate consequences of the principle of freedom of the press is that they are free to choose what kind of uh, information and what kind of articles they write. This concept of objectivity, however, um, you know, ha has gone out the window ever since. And this is quite um, you know, strange in many ways that there is an adverse relationship between freedom of the press and the, the sort of growth of the Internet and people's access to social media, because um, newspapers are now competing to such a great extent with the world's ability to produce its own news, its own media. Um, that the only way they can maintain their, uh, I suppose, Extremity. market share, yes. yeah, it's, it's business. You know, they get sponsorship. And so that uh, essentially you sell yourself to those organizations and companies that can afford to keep you running. I was always of the opinion one should read three or four good papers and listen to two or three different stations for the news to get some kind of overview of what was being thought in different countries and to make up one's own mind about what one's own reality and reaction would be. Um, I don't know almost nobody who does that, who still does that except uh, uh, scholars. Mm. Yeah, academia can, because academia says we're conducting research. So therefore, right. you know, right. it's, it's yes. correct for us to analyze these things. Mm -hmm. uh, but most people don't have the time. Most people mm -hmm. don't have the will. They, I mean, I, I find it difficult, for example, to read some of the right wing papers in, in the UK. I, I, I do attempt it. I'm also subscribed to GB News. Uh, because I like to see what they what they have to say, and, and I mean some of it I find absolutely ridiculous, but um, you know, I, I, I kind of tend to take it in good jest. But um, I mean, again, I, I could read a lot more of the right wing press. I just I don't have the I don't have the patience for it because they're so judgmental. It's uh, and there I am being judgmental myself. So that's a bit of a contradiction. But um, yeah, I, I feel that I have uh, proof for my uh, judgments, whereas I don't feel that it's often justified on the other hand. But uh, obviously, that's a very biased view of my own view. Um, I would agree because um, 
after you've read or listened to uh, such media uh, for, let's say, 10, 20 times, and you know, then you can analyze what is in there, why they bring it, whatever they bring, the way they bring it, what they're trying to do with it, what they're trying to uh, find in in their readership or in their uh, audience. Um, and as I said, when when we talked about books, if I read a book or start reading a book and buy some 20, 30, 40 pages, I see, oh, this is not what I want to spend my time with or on. Uh, I close it and I close um, the papers and I turn off those uh, radio stations of television stations. So um, I think we have to educate people more on how to deal with the media. But first of all, we have to educate the journalists to do their job and do research into all directions and then come up with with their uh, analysis. And uh, for us to learn how to deal with the different types of media that exist. There always be, will be uh, fake news. There was uh, fake news 200 years ago um, and a lot longer. And we won't be able to eradicate it. But um, I think we should learn to identify it. And many people cannot identify it. Yeah, I mean, in the in the old days to which you refer, usually the, the the truth was either dependent upon the the level of seniority or authority of an individual within society, uh, which is something that in some ways is mirrored by modern society when we are in court, for example. So mm -hmm. um, the the words of a lowly person would not in any way be comparable to that of a prominent business person, for example. I mean, these kinds of inequalities still exist today. Um, but there was also the uh, the fact that whoever delivered the news first quite often into court would be the one whose version of events was more likely to be followed if it was indeed advantageous to uh, the ruling elite. Uh, and again, this is something which isn't necessarily too different uh, today, depending upon the means with which that news is communicated and how much uh, thereafter the, the fallout of whatever other news may come through uh, is controlled. What, what we see, however, though, with social media and, for example, with George Floyd um, and the Black Lives Matter movement, which, you know, his very tragic death, in, death inspired, is that by having the ability of individuals, members of the public to, to be brave in themselves, to take these videos, to upload those videos, and to, in some ways, you know, inspire emotion, um, we do see the value that an individual can contribute even though they're not necessarily trained, but right. they are representing truth and reality, which is right. shocking. Right. Uh, it's not the media that that is or that are wrong. 
it's the use of them. Uh, the use can be positive, the use can be negative. Um, if, if the people who use it um, have a mind and have a conscience, uh, they will use it for the benefit of all. And those who don't have these uh, characteristics will send more and more and more fake news and hatred and, and violence through the media. I'm not blaming the media. The media is, is the instrument and the, the instrument, the tool has to be handled by us. And it's us who have to be better educated, better trained, and it's not necessarily uh, the so-called ethical uh, organizations. It's not necessarily the uh, churches who um, are the best guides. Even there, you have to see whom you would trust to not exclude the rest of the world. Um, it's it's a problem all around. Uh, I was I was thinking of the of the religious media in America, and that is those are bubbles I don't want to buy be uh, to be caught in. Mm. But it's not limited to those. I mean, those those individuals operate within their, in some cases, local communities, in some cases, perhaps on a national level because of, uh, I think, God TV and so on that they have there. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, we, you know, it's not just an American thing. I mean, we, we've seen 2000 years of, of the church um, and the, well, sorry, 1700 years of the church at most. Um, and the, the oppression that then followed with the um, the pursuit of growing uh, their you know Christian ideals, the role of the church and so on. And then we've seen other religions as well, which have in some at some stage uh, pursued you know, very aggressively uh, the growth and development of their own power base. I mean, this unfortunately is is the way that religions uh, operate, and so therefore I I I, I do see the um, uh, the connection, and it, it's it's very much a difficult uh, subject to jump into. I so I agree with you that I it's wouldn't just, want to. It's not just the religions; it's uh, any group or organization that um, projects their own truth as the only truth. Then they have to defend themselves. They have to be aggressive. They have to cut every everybody out. And um, th this is religious parties, uh, political parties. It's private parties. It's economic uh, uh, setups, and so on and so forth. Um, it is a pattern that has to do with defending your own truth even sometimes if you don't really believe it, but it's your power base. Yeah, I'm sitting here nodding my head vigorously with uh, each one of those groups that you uh, presented. I mean, the, the economic side is also very interesting because 
you know, again, going back to the case of um, of, of Daphne Caruana Galizia, she she was um, one of the journalists involved. If you know, I, I don't know how uh, particularly, um, you know, what what the roles were within the investigation of the Panama Papers, but she was one of those who brought brought the Panama Papers uh, out. She uh, pursued their investigation with vigor. She identified a number of individuals, I believe, also in in, in Malta who were involved um, with the mm. Panama Papers and had a lot to cover. It's you know when you attack the economic interests of powerful individuals, groups, governments, then clearly you're painting a a target on, on your back. Is there no way to better protect journalists who have? the public interest at heart. I mean, you know, so many of these, in, these, these detectives, sorry, I say detectives, these uh, investigative journalists, they, are, they die alone. There's nobody there to protect them. Yes. Um, going back to what uh, I used to worry about in Writers in Prison, uh, this was a, a writer's association that was protecting their own trying to protect their own as much as they could. It was a small group. Um, International Pen has maybe 15,000 members and maybe uh, 150 centers, but you can start a center with 20 people. Um, for a long time, there was no equivalent to Pen for journalists. Um, then came Amnesty International, which was um, founded nine months after Writers in Prison Committee in International Pen. Uh, and then very slowly, but very, um, very forcefully came International Journalists Associations, national and international journalist associations. And they cannot protect their own if the countries where they do their research, if the governments of these countries don't protect them. Think of, again, Mexico. Mexico, you have the different kinds of mafias, um, the drug uh, cartels and so on and so forth, um, they kill the journalists and the state cannot protect them. And I have a, sometimes had, had the feeling they, they really didn't want to protect them because they would con getting themselves into the fire. And this is, this is where the interdependence of uh, the population the institutions, the free-flowing groups that have their own interests, where these clash, it's very, very hard to protect anyone. So shouldn't shouldn't society then, for example, take it upon themselves to protect? I mean, you know, I'm being a bit idealistic, oh, maybe a bit oh. naive, but well, louder voices, as in making demands. For example, when an investigative journalist you know, drops the paper, the Panama Papers, for example. I mean, how could society not jump on the bandwagon 
of identifying these individuals or these organizations that have stripped society of its wealth. They have stored a lot of this wealth, and in some cases, obviously legitimately. I'm not saying everybody who was um, identified in the Panama Papers um, had committed a crime. But, but there are questions that need to be asked. And yet the, the public, okay, it absorbs the information that was given, but then there's so much information within the Panama Papers that we, after two weeks, there's another story that develops somewhere in a, you know, there's a, a, a climatic event or a war or an attack or this or that. And then that's it. The Panama Papers, two week cycle, it's forgotten about. We move on to the next thing. Yes. But, yes. but that's, but we have there's to be no, la louder. There's no follow up because um, not everybody has money enough to uh, join in the Panama, uh, uh, to get on the Panama bandwagon. Um, so people say, oh, it doesn't concern me. It doesn't concern me. Not realizing that it is in 90% of the cases, it's public money that is embezzled and brought outside of the country and protected by indifference. Indifference by the people, indifference not by the journalists have brought it to our intention, but they don't have the power to really get the people, as you said, to react to it, because the people, um, their, their memory is very short, two days, and they don't know what Panama, what, what are you talking about? Because there's, there's a, an huge amount of uh, sensational news that is being presented to us wherever we look. And it's very hard to really come down and say, okay, this is where it really is. This is where we really have to do something. And then there's the, the pandemia, then there is uh, uh, the pandemic, then there is um, the war in Afghanistan and the attention goes someplace else. Yeah. And that's that's part of the problem too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, attention spans do tend to be rather limited. Um, and you know, especially when we are, you know, constantly confronted with these very, very serious events, in, in many cases tragic events. It's it's very hard to you know keep a hold uh, of our sanity, I guess, in some cases. And this is also related to what I said earlier, when you have the investigative journalists, which are, who have you know dug and dug and dug away uh, at trying to uncover the truth, and then you know it's they're so deep now that they can't see above the hole that they've created. Um, it, this is very similar with international news. You know, we always look at the next event, the next event, the next event, we forgot what happened there. And in some cases, there are connections. I mean, why is it that these events are lined up? You know, how is it possible that they don't all occur at the same time? Yes. You know, as, as in, I, I do believe that there is something sinister in this. I mean, for example, during the financial crash. So if, um, you know, if many, many countries, one of these Western democracies are on their knees because of the, the financial crash, Surely this is then the opportunity for the wolves to come in and, you know, nibble at the carcass uh, of what there is. But this did not happen. 
And so therefore, you know, they waited until, you know, moderate economic recovery. And then all of a sudden we saw a spate of horrible, horrific attacks in in Europe. Um, It does beg the question, you know, what was happening? Um, I, 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 I mean, there must be a you, you, you referred, I think, previously when you were talking about Wordsworth with, um, you know, me- metaphysics and time and the passage of time and the connection with nature. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm not saying that these people are poets, but um, you know, they obviously pick their moments, and it's quite interesting what motivates that uh, those choices. First of all, I don't think they have. Um, a grip on what is really happening while it's happening. While it's happening. Um, There is a period of the information has to settle, it has to be analyzed, it has to be put into some kind of system of compartments. And this is why the reaction is late. We, anything or in most cases, anything that happens, our reaction is delayed reaction, because we can't grasp it while it's happening. Um, And I think that is a human uh, problem and not a professional problem. But this is where we, we rely on professional politicians, theoretically, because these are the individuals who are who are in the know. They've been briefed. They are aware of the, the the mechanisms of government. They are in a position where they can make a difference, and so therefore, we this is why we elect these people. And right. yet, we we see they are more than just fallible. In many cases, they're part of the problem. They're late. They they don't think in terms of what comes after. Um, in terms of the flood here in in Germany, um, that was on. It was in the books. It was absolutely clear that this could happen. And in terms of the pandemic, uh, there was no system or no thought of, oh, this is coming. What shall we do when the first and second and third phase are over? They do not, they do not plan for the future. And in that sense, uh, politicians in most countries uh, are at fault and uh, this is why nobody really trusts them anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm reading a book which was written uh, in 2015 or 2016, I can't tell which, um, but the it's, it's written by Miriam Lancewood and it's the story of this of, of a woman who goes to live in the mountains with her husband and uh, she was she said that um, when she had uh, quizzed a doctor as to what the next big tragedy is the doctor said yeah it's the same as always a pandemic we fear uh, the pandemic and this was a book that was written at least four or five years ago yes. um, you know, so, so therefore, it does beg the question that if an author who went to live in the mountains was aware that a pandemic is the, you know, the next big thing that's going to hit, uh, or what society is most afraid of, how is it that the international governments were not aware of this? Forty make- years ago, in, while I was still in America, uh, we had a group of friends and we talked about, it was in, an exciting time, uh, we talked about anything and everything, it was an international group of um, scholars and professors and students. We talked about the pandemics, that they were coming. 
that we wouldn't have measures against them. We would have to really uh, get on our feet to do something now, 40 years ago. 40 years ago. And between that time, there had been SARS, there had been uh, Eboli, there had been other pan uh, pandemics. And now came the big one, and nobody was prepared. The, the health systems were not prepared. Some of the doctors were not prepared. The, the, the support systems, the infrastructure, the personnel uh, uh, was not prepared. And you can sit there and you freeze because you shake. You want to stop shaking because you're in a rage. Why, why, why? And then you start blaming yourself and why didn't you scream? But you can't scream all the time. And here is yet another example of fake news because we've seen, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, if not into the millions, who have died purely because their governments refused to take action when they Absolutely. could. And, and I'm obviously looking at Brazil and the USA as two um, you know, key elements here under Trump and Bolsonaro. And, yes. you know, and these things continue. I mean, I see on Twitter on a daily, almost daily basis, perhaps a weekly basis is, is, a, is a more accurate description. But there are you know, right wing um, uh, influential people in the USA who have radio shows, who have political groups. Um, and, you know, they come out on their shows and they say, you know, the vaccine, it's a hoax. You don't need to wear a mask and so on. And then a few days later or weeks later, these people are dying from COVID. So clearly, you know, the rubbish that they are talking about. For some reason, it still manages to attract um, yes. you know, people's attention. I mean, apparently there's now horse dewormers as, in, as some kind of a product, a medication for horses to remove worms. Mm -hmm. You know, people in America are using this because they believe it's better than the vaccine. As in, it's, it's absolutely crazy, some of the things that people come out with. So, I mean, I, I do understand when you talk to me about fake news and you say, you know, it is symbolic of the society in which we live. You know, even if people were prepared or our governments were prepared, there would still be elements of society that would come out and say, we don't need your preparation. I okay, can just take that's bleach. their choice. Then yeah. it's their choice. But uh, that is no reason why we shouldn't be prepared and why our governments shouldn't be prepared. You know, you may have 20% of people who do not abide by the uh, remedies that you offer. But that's their choice. But it's a failure, total failure, if you don't have the remedies, meaning the infrastructure and the personnel and so on and so forth. Yeah. This is what I mean. Absolutely. I mean, we've drifted a little bit from the main topic, but that's that's not a problem because I'd, I'd like us to actually address uh, our topic of freedom of the press again, because I, I think we could perhaps also go into greater detail some you know, of the forms of, of democracy uh, that we that we have and perhaps why why these forms of democracy fail, um, essentially, because, I mean, let's face it, if you were buying a product and a product was democracy, you'd give it back because it just doesn't work. Um, so why is it, you know, in consumerism that is possible, but in politics it's not? Uh, so it's definitely something that needs to be looked at. Well, you, you sh probably would have to say that about every kind of system that mm. has um, 
some ideology or some set of beliefs in them and is not pragmatic. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Um, one last question for you, uh, because it's also it actually connects the two topics that we've discussed. So freedom in some cases, democracy, um, uh, but on the other hand, also um, the uh, the topic of the pandemic. So today, an article hit uh, the news that uh, the German government is considering uh, enforcing a rule which says that those people who are not vaccinated um, and who do not have a negative test result for a 24-hour cycle, for example, uh, will be restricted. Um, in the case of uh, growing uh, cases of infections, um, um, of, there, of visiting certain two, places, what, what, what do you think about that? Uh, there, there are two measures um, that are talked about. One is the two and one is has the three elements. One has the element um, like trains only for people who have been vaccinated or have been recovered from um, the uh, from COVID. And the number three is uh, a test, a test that they are free at the time. Um, that is being still being discussed. Um, they're still fighting about it. Uh, there will be restrictions. Um, there are official restrictions in official in public service uh, uh, elements like in on trains um there was a question that nobody was supposed to enter a train who has not been either vaccinated or has recovered or has tested and this has been um cast aside they cannot do that they won't do it so there there is a lot of discussion in, into all directions, and um, nobody knows exactly what is going to happen. There will be restrictions for people who have not been um, injected. Um, if in private business, the owners of private business say, we don't want anybody uh, in here to eat who is not vaccinated or has not recovered or has not uh, proved by, by a test that they are right, that they can do, that they can do legally. But in terms of public uh, public transport and so on and so forth, they, um, they're still debating, but they can't. And they, they have more or less thrown that out. So it's, it's nothing, nothing is, is, is settled yet. It's it's a matter of um, what do you think is more important that um, those who are not immune uh, will uh, infect those who may have been uh, may have gone through through all uh, the proper. Uh, instances of uh, the jab and distance and the mask and there's I mean they're still vulnerable to some degree mm. and um, particularly now since children uh, are the age group that is being uh, infected uh, more and more by the Delta 
uh, variant that uh, to save the children, um, people should be forced to go and get the jab. I don't know what's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't saw know what's right. I saw a video of um, of Miami airport where some guy who wasn't wearing a mask um, obviously reacted very badly to be asked to wear a mask and he just went crazy and started trying to fight people and was uh, you know hitting out against uh, people who work there and, and apparently it took um, a US marshal uh, to eventually you know get this guy but I mean it's you know, I've also seen in the US, in the UK, excuse me, when um, a group of people wearing um, superhero masks went into a supermarket and essentially just beat up all of the mm -hmm. people who worked there because they didn't want to wear a mask. And they were told you have to wear a mask. This is a public shopping center, uh, supermarket. And they said, well, to hell with you. And they just started fighting everybody who worked there. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, if there isn't um, you know, police presence, uh, then it's extremely difficult to enforce these rules. We're then asking members of the public to be enforcers. That's a situation we don't want to see, um, no. you know, especially in Germany. People are very much against that kind of um, you know, policy. So it's going to be really, really hard to to introduce these measures. I'm I'm not looking forward to to another lockdown. But I do believe it will occur. Looking at the figures, um, and uh, yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not encouraged by um, you know social commitment to looking after our fellow humans. It doesn't seem to be um, a very active thought at the moment. It's it's a big problem, and um, it's not quite clear. Um, German politicians on all fronts say we will not have another lockdown. Um, the economy, of course, does not want a lockdown. Um, I'm not sure whether if it is not stopped by other means, by implementation or by masks or whatever, or by by change of, of weather, um, we may have another lockdown if it gets worse. Because it, it is getting worse. And I, I live in a, in the part of the country in North, North Rhine-Westphalia, which is the worst part yeah. of, yeah, of Mr. Germany. Yeah, Mr. Laschet's hunting ground. So, uh, yeah, maybe that tells us a little bit about his approach to the, the pandemic. Um, Karin, what can I say? Thank you very much. Um, it's, yeah. <laughs> I, I learn every opportunity, uh, every every word, every every sentence spoken. Um, I'm thankful for the views that you bring, the, the experience, the stories, um, and yeah, I, I look forward to you know the next one where I have a feeling we will pursue you know with vigor uh, different lines, different principles, and um, yeah, question everything. That's right. We may not find the answers, but at least we have the questions. <laughs> this is the way I, uh, uh, when I went to South Africa with my brother during the time of uh, apartheid, um, I said, the only way I go down there now with you is um, I will read for about the next three months everything I can get on the history of Southern Africa, because I want to have the right questions. 
I may not get the answers. And this was exactly true. I had the right questions, which made me feel comfortable because I was looking and I was experiencing and I could see that the questions I had were real. I didn't have the answers and the answers came later. Uh, I went to uh, to uh, South Africa in 88 and apartheid uh, toppled uh, a little later. So the, quest the answers to many of the questions or the remedies to many of the questions came later and many have not come yet. But yeah. uh, this this is so my my trick is always to have the right questions is very important. Absolutely, absolutely. And and uh, the, the list of questions that you have, I'm sure, are long. And so therefore, hopefully we'll be able to address them uh, one at a time. Thank mm. you very much again, Karin. Uh, it's wonderful. What can I say? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 50 episodes is a small milestone. However, even small achievements should be celebrated. So keeping philosophical sentiments aside, I'll simply say I'm more than pleased to have reached this point. Far more importantly than the milestone has been the journey, and even more important than the journey, is the people with whom I have shared the experience. This podcast channel is about the many paths taken, the paths unseen, and those experienced through the eyes of others. Perspective is always key. Schrödinger's cat challenged us in its own particular way, but we can all ask ourselves the question, is happiness relevant if it cannot be shared? By extension, we can also wonder whether pain could be mitigated through the division of its presence with those who are important to us. I won't dare to answer these questions for anyone else. For me, my path has only ever had meaning because of the occasions I have had to share it with others. I have occasionally ventured alone, but mostly I was in company, good company. I want to thank all of those co-travelers for their patient steps their generous ears, and their free wisdom. Two and a mic. Two, 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 two and a mic. Two, 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 two and a mic.